Welcome back to another episode of Founder Stories. Now, if this is your first time listening, I want you to get ready for an incredible journey. This podcast is raw, emotional, vulnerable. We go into depth with each individual entrepreneur, learning what drives them, what motivates them, so we can apply those lessons into our own life. The past year and a half has been difficult for everyone, but out of every fire rises hope and opportunity. And one of the most amazing things was to see all the new companies that have launched during this time to help us in our productivity at work or in our personal life and everything else. Today's guest is one of those companies. Yoav is a serial entrepreneur having founded three previous companies and is currently building a great company called Walnut.io, one of the hottest companies to come out of COVID-19. It was listed as a top 50 place to work and has made it onto multiple other prestigious lists. Walnut has raised money from incredible investors, the CEO of Wix, NFX, and multiple others. In our conversation with Yoav, we go into how he fell into entrepreneurship by accident, you know, what it takes to build a great company, and many tips on launching a product to the market. Yoav, thank you for this incredible conversation and your honesty. I truly and truly enjoyed it. There's no doubt that you, the listener, if you're going to listen to this episode once, twice, or even three times, you're going to learn so many incredible things that you're able to implement into your own life. So have a great listen, and please share with a friend who you think can benefit too. Now, this message is important, so listen closely. In order to inspire thousands of other people and to help them make an impact in this world and make a change in their life, please subscribe and leave a review. Hey, everyone. I'm super, super excited today to have with us a very special guest for Founder Stories. Today, we have the absolute honor to host our dear friend, Yoav. Yoav is the CEO of a phenomenal company called Walnut, has raised a decent amount of money, $6 million from the likes of NFX, the CEO of Wix, and multiple others. He is a serial entrepreneur, having having founded two previous companies. But not only that, he's also a ukulele player, an Xbox player. He is a musician in a band. Um, he's a incredible, I guess, we want to say a world traveler, a photographer too, and multiple, multiple other incredible, incredible things. But at the end of the day, Yov is a really nice guy, which that's what it boils down to in entrepreneurship and in life. Nothing else matters. So I'm super excited today to have Yov here with us that he's going to share his life journey, the lessons he learned. That took him to where he is today. So, Yoav, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So, Yoav, let's just jump right into it. You know, you're a serial founder, having founded two previous companies, one when you were 22 years old that blew up, you know, had a tremendous amount of clients. I think you serviced around, um, from my understanding, close to 600 individual startups. Then you went ahead and started another startup, and now you're on your third startup. You know, what's one misconception that you've seen constantly from either current entrepreneurs, future entrepreneurs, or people talking about entrepreneurship, or even yourself, that people have about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs? Well, there's, there's so, so many um, because this, this industry is full of uh, cliches and, you know, people trying to adjust to all kinds of uh, frameworks. Um, I, would, I would say... First of all, right now, there's like this craziness going on and it seems like every startup you launch would uh, end up in an IPO and, you know, people are just, VCs are just pouring a lot of money on, on uh, not the best ideas or the best founders they can find just because they have to do it. 
because that's like the situation in the market. And I think I think one misconception right now is that it's something that's going to last. So that means you can actually go in, find founders, build something without, you know, doing the proper research, without um, doing the, the amount of self-learning that you would do for a regular era startup because you say there's so much money out there i can just raise a couple of millions of dollars for pretty much anything um even if you can do it let's say you're well connected and you know you're a second timer even if you do that eventually sometime this bubble will burst and then products that do not serve a real problem i do think they will be in serious serious troubles um and companies will be doing like down rounds and a lot of mess um will take place so one big misconception right now, I think, is there's easy money mm-hmm. right now, but it doesn't mean that you have to take it. Right. It's so true. You know, what did they say? It's never take stupid money or stupid money is, is always stupid money. And uh, to your point, I think just this morning when you know, I was going through the emails, things like that, I think I've, I've counted at least 10 startups today that raised a tremendous amount of money. Um, and that's like every single day. Exactly. And, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts. Like, how does that, um, you know, first of all, the, like the leaders these days, the people that kids look up to are, you know, obviously the creator co- economy and entrepreneurs. You know, it's not anymore the celebrities. And, you know, this thing could essentially, you know, do more detriment, detriment you know, trouble. Um, it could be more bad for the entrepreneurship community where young kids or young people think anyone can start a startup and it'd be easy to raise money. And, you know, they throw their life savings into it. They throw their time into it, which is more important. And obviously, as entrepreneurship experience, everyone should go through. But this misconception that, oh, I'll just start taking an idea and eventually I'll raise millions of dollars like everyone else and I'll become a unicorn within two years, which seems like the norm now, is, is more troublesome than, you know, the real way how it's done before this whole everything that's happened now. I think. Yeah, because everything has to go, everything that goes up must come down sometime. Right. And if you've taken too much money before you validated anyone, any client even cares about your product. If you've taken money from VCs that are wrong for you just because the option was there, you, you can't really build a huge company like that. Like you're going to, you're going to, you know, eat your own soup eventually. If it's in two years, three years, it doesn't matter. Right. It's not going to be a long-term play. For sure. And that's the most amazing thing about your current startup, you know, Walnut, what you did. Um, which we're going to get into in, in more detail is that the way how you went ahead to go, um, first of all, you f- focused on the branding before actually launching the product, which is something that um, a tremendous, a massive conversation in itself. Um, also, the way how you went ahead and launched the product even before you actually had the product, which we'll get into, um, and the way how you validated the whole entire concept. But before we get into that, you know, every story has a backstory. So before Walnut, before everything else, um, before your aspirations become a movie actor, uh, before everything else you wanted to do in life, you know, why don't you tell us the backstory? Well, who is the little you of? You know, where are you from? You know, what was your upbringing like? I think to myself, I'm still a little you of, but <laughs> um, I, I was I was born in a in a kibbutz way up north in Israel, um, which is a really unique childhood. It was in the '90s, and things were like very, you know, uh, innocent. Uh, and afterwards, we moved on to to live in cities in like in, in 
central uh, Israel. My first ambition was to do stuff that are more like artsy, like, you know, play guitar, uh, study acting, write stuff. This is like my uh, 17-year-old version. Um, so I did all these things and, you know, I started playing the guitars and I do it up until today. And like you said, in a band and um, writing. So I, you know, I wanted to write like scripts and stuff. I ended up writing for like magazines that are, you know, the biggest in the, in the world about marketing, about startups. So it's kind of everything kind of switched on with my career. But uh, this is this is where I came from. Like my career just started kind of by accident. It's like every entrepreneur has a kind of, you know, that process where it's not that they, you know, entrepreneur, they don't choose entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship chooses them. And the problems that they come ahead to solve is something that they fall into. But right. back to your childhood, for example, you know, growing up as a boy in kibbutz, um, for those that don't know what a kibbutz is, why don't you give them like a quick 30-second rundown? Wow, it's a lot of words. I'm not really sure how to say in English. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of a, it's kind of, you know, I, I would say the word village of the modern age. Like, you know, there's very few families. They have like little houses with huge yards and gardens and barely any cars. Right. The children just run around barefoot you know, on the, on the street because there's no cars and, um, you know, not a lot of rules. Everyone's like, they share like salaries and everyone's like equal. And in some kibbutzes in, in the 80s and the 90s, like the CEO of something would make the same salary as, you know, uh, someone that's not a CEO. And it was, it was, a, it was a really, it was a really popular way of settling. And I don't think, like they exist today, obviously, but it's totally different. Like they're just private private uh, places right now. So was that adjustment going from a boy from the, a kibbutz where obviously it's uh, everyone's equal. There's no, there's no hierarchy, which is a place also I'm assuming where you know, it's not necessarily people. Yeah, I'm not sure if you know about the, the bigger things outside of the kibbutz, right? Obviously you've been to bigger cities, but the own aspirations are probably not, not as big or because just grow up in that society. Nothing to do with not having big aspirations. You grew up around there. Was it difficult moving to a bigger city? Um, it was it was difficult. I think it was difficult in terms of like, you know, you get used to one specific landscape and one specific uh, behavior of people and behavior of your friends. And then everything just like completely opposite. And you're still a kid. So everything kind of seems different. So it was a very, it was a very different landscape, different set of behaviors by people, different set of rules, um, a lot of cars on the streets. So it was a very, it was a very impactful uh, shift. Yeah, that's it. So then, like, you have any like pivotal moments with from your childhood that like things that either shaped you, either someone you came account encounter with that really, you know, own call a mentor or someone that gave you that some type of aspiration. Some any pivotal moments? You know, I, funnily enough, like I think when I was twenty two and I started my first company, it was it was not as mainstream to have like mentors and. Not a lot of people were like, you know, influencers and thought leaders, like everyone is or booze, or like everyone are today. <laughs> kind of, it was me and it was me and a friend experimenting with some marketing for startups. And we just built our own relationships and built our own, um, you know, networks and studied everything on our own. So in, in specifically in the, in the tech industry, I did not start it because of someone's inspiration. Um, but today, everything's different. Like today, everyone's, you know, there's a lot of variety and selection of people, mm -hmm. really smart people with a lot of um, impressive resumes. So you can consult with them if you're like a first timer. Yeah. But these days, everyone have it, you have it much easier. I mean, take back what, when you were 22. What year was that? It was well, pretty much a decade ago. 
Okay, I thought you're younger. No, I'm joking. But um, still look. But take it a decade ago. You know, the cost of starting a startup a decade ago, and the cost of starting a startup today, it's you can't even compare. To start a launch a startup today it could cost you less than you know two thousand dollars. Not even. Um, you know, all you have to do is register an LLC, buy a domain name, go get it hosted in Amazon, AWS, even cheaper places, and boom, you get someone to a Fiverr to design you a, a, a no code solutions. It's uh, simple. Back a decade ago. It was so expensive to launch something. It was crazy. But like, I want to go back to your first startup. You know, you both your parents were in entrepreneurship, right? And where is the whole desire for entrepreneurship? And you mentioned something earlier, which is very interesting. That the first thing was that obviously you had no. wasn't like you had a, this. You chose to be going into entrepreneurship. It chose you. But also, your whole reason why you got into your first concept was because you wanted to become an actor, a songwriter, uh, a movie writer. So you started just writing content in order to build up your. Your writing game. Yeah, I found out that I'm very passionate about writing stuff. And if you take it like a lot of years forward, then I actually wrote stuff for, you know, Forbes magazine and Fox News and, and CNBC and, and all of the big top publications. Um, obviously, when I just started doing it, then I actually did it. And I focused, I sat two days just writing an article. Um, it was actually fun for me, but then it kind of scaled. So I had to get help from from people, you know, um, that I could just like give the, the main points and flesh and they would jot something down because I was running, if you take like 2015, I was managing maybe 10 columns in top pub publications and it's a lot of stuff and I had my own company, so I couldn't really sit down and, and actually write everything. But this is, this is how it works. You know, busy people, they run a lot of aspects of their branding and, and their personal like content marketing and everything. In all kinds of creative ways, because no one expects you to actually sit down and write everything uh, from scratch. For sure. Also, if you want to get something done, you always give it to a busy person because they'll find a way to get it done. And they, they and even you, you never find a busy person. Or at least I haven't found saying like I can't add it to my calendar. We're too busy. They'll find a way to make it happen. You want something not to get done? Give it to someone that has nothing on their calendar. Lazy person. Yeah. But did you ever think of yourself as an entrepreneur when you're launching that thing? When you're writing columns and things are starting to build up and you're starting to get this whole reputation and companies starting to reach out. You say, hey, y'all, could you do some PR for us? Could you do this? Are you still viewing yourself like, hey, I want to go down this entrepreneurship route and launch a company, or still you're just doing it for fun or to try to get your acting career? off the ground no so, so what happened is the company just kind of formed by itself because when the word was out the two guys Yoav and Shafa were just like two marketing dudes that are helping a couple of startups with the marketing and it was maybe I don't know 2012 or something and it was a lot less crazy than what it is today um, there was not not a lot of marketing talent you could hire there was not a lot of um you know, outsource solutions for marketing. You you just kind of had to, you know, you raise a seed and you just had to do something with it. Um, so the word was like out and people were like going crazy for what we did. And then it kind of launched, uh, we called it Ranky, like, you know, the gnome and the munchkin and we scaled it up from there. Yeah, so tell, tell us a brief history about that. Where did it go to? Yeah, so the minute that Shaha and I noticed that there's craziness about uh, this thing that we'll call marketing for startups. You know, it was initially called growth hacking and then we changed this to startup marketing and whatever buzzword it was back then. We just formed it into a company and it's just, we started seeing like dozens of dozens, dozens of startup reach out. And like you said, 600 was the end game number and dozens of employees, offices in London, offices in, uh, in the US. And I lived in all these different locations. It was just a lot of fun. And, you know, accelerators and tech hubs started 
inviting us as like mentors and advisors and you know companies like Microsoft and Google and Amazon and 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 the UN and whatever you can imagine that has like an accelerator wanted us to to help their companies um so for for a few years it was like you know the cool kid on the block mm-hmm. but after six years of being the CEO I just kind of moved on to my next thing so t- talk me to the, your own personal progress and progression uh, in those six years you know you're a boy from the kibbutz you ended up you didn't have to go to MBA school I mean even though college these days is a whole nother you know if it's worth it or not but you didn't have, like you mentioned back in the day, the whole mentorship process. You know, there was no rule book, you know, a decade ago. There was no, you know, these days we're spoiled to a certain degree. We have everything from hard things about hard things, zero to one. We have this book, we have that book. A decade ago, there was, you know, there was an innovator's dilemma. But um, your process for, for, for personal growth, but your, your process for, for becoming a, a CEO, you know, the mistakes you made as a first-time entrepreneur at 22 is a very young age. You know, a decade ago, now it's a norm, you know, but a decade ago is when even 22 was, was it's still not the norm yet. Yes. Yeah, so, so I openly talk about it often in podcasts, a lot of mistakes. Like I was a crappy CEO to start with. I, every hiring mistake possible, every, every possible mistake in like structuring your team and deciding who's going to do what. It was just, it was one big mess. Mm. Um, and, you know, from, from one side, I don't feel sorry. I don't feel sorry at all because that kind of formed my you know this is my third run so it had to start somewhere um and the people like the actual employees that we had and you know that we made our mistakes with they also grew up from there they learned a lot and they ended up being some of the best people in, in marketing i think and not and not just in israel so um it was a school for everyone i would say kind of halfway like three years in i was already a decent ceo like i could build you know the company and help us scale and be like the face the outgoing face of, of the company and and you know run the operations also and everything um and by the time it ended like six years into it i was definitely much more um educated about how to run a company right it's funny you mentioned like the first few years where it was a school for everyone and you know you were a shitty ceo I had a conversation yesterday with a CEO who told me that he got into, he made he made a mistake, but before he realized he made the mistake, he sort of like you know lost his cool on his on his employee. And when he afterwards he realized he made the mistake, and first of all he apologized for losing his cool, but then he apologized for making a mistake too. Do you ever go back? Do you ever think about uh, like have you ever ever apologized to, to former employees for owning up to a mistake and you know putting ego aside and everything? Even if it's something for like years ago. Yeah, I think I'm. On, on a personal level, I'm very cool with most of the employees that we had. So even if there was like a, you know, falling out, it ended up being uh, fine. Um, I, I don't think, no, there was no, I don't remember a case where it was like, you know, resentful and something that goes on for several years. It was not the case. No, for sure. There's no, there's no point of expectations lead to resentments. Also no point leading resentments because only once. So might as well just, you know, get the shit over with and, you know, connect together. But moving forward, so you obviously have this incredible success of Rankly. Like you mentioned, you ended up with 600 clients. You take a little break. Then you start another startup, which we'll skip for now because I want to get in, in, into Walnut. Because Walnut is the, all the, the talk all days. You had an incredible um, article yesterday about the top 50 places to work, which is amazing. And you know, for a company that's only a year and a half old, not even probably yet. A year. A year, just one year. Wow. So let's get into one. Where did the idea for Walnut originate from? And once we start with that, the other thing I want to get into is that you launched Walnut basically in the pandemic in COVID-19. Not only you launched it, you raised money during that process. 
you um, recruited during that process. And you know, if you look at today where Walnut is, you're you know you raise money from incredible investors. Your team is growing, and it's definitely you know one of the top startups to watch. Not even a question. And I know Salesforce is watching this. They're definitely hopefully they'll buy up. I you know at the end of this call. But let's get into the original thing, the, the idea for for, for Walnut. Yeah, so Walnut is, is kind of a case where everything just kind of aligned. And, you know, it's really a one-of-a-kind case. Um, for my co-founder, it's also a third run. So we're, we started it off very uh, mature about what we want to do and how we want to do it. There was two sides to that, you know, the inception of the company. One side was what I saw when I ran a 600-client marketing company where I saw companies spend the most amount of money on prospects in all kinds of different channels, but then when they had to actually show them the live product and in, in a demo, something went wrong. Um, and this is something that I kept like in the back of my head. I had no solution or interesting thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for Danny, he was bu building startups and then selling them to big companies and then working from the enterprise side. And he saw a lot of friction, a lot of stuff going on when, when, when young companies try to demonstrate demos to their clients. And we kind of said, you know, what, what if we, what if we've disconnect, we completely disconnected the product from its backend? So we've totally eliminated the option of demos breaking during a live call. And, and that's not enough. What if while they're disconnected and on safely on the cloud, what if the, what if the sales Per, per, uh, people could actually customize the demo without anyone's help, not, yeah. you know, R&D, product design. So so we kind of, you know, we, we validated, we, we just showed it to several dozens of VP sales in companies and, and we saw them going crazy. Like, yeah. you know, they said, if, if you build this thing, we will pay for it, this and that. And we wanted to get paid. So uh, we built it and everything just, just took off. Wow. Did you start charging from day one? We, we had a few design partners, really impressive companies, um, ever since we were like free product, but we've, we, we, because of the demand and because of the waiting list that we had, so we, we very quickly switched to actual just commercial agreements. Right. So then how did you um, build up that demand pre-launch? So, so this is the toughest questions, the toughest question that I get asked. Okay. Because I just brought a lot of things to it that I know from my previous background, and they will not necessarily work for another startup in a different industry. I get asked about it every day, like you know about launching and and, and what you discussed. And it, it, I just I just say it, it was a like a little disclaimer. It might not work for, for your startup. So what what happened to us? Like we focused on on a couple of principles. Um, first of all, we realize we're solving a massive problem. Otherwise, no launch can be successful. Um, the second thing, we were very, very clear and very short. And, you know, we just had one landing page with um, what this product is going to do. Mm -hmm. so there was no room for like vagueness and, you know, whatever. Um, we, we wanted to see what the product hunt community had to say about it. And we ended up being like, actually twice, we were like the first product um, of the day and then also of the week and then also nominated for their annual awards for the best product. Uh, that just, um, that was a crazy, a crazy couple of weeks for us. Um, we pitched what we're doing to a couple of journalists and in the original launch, 20 articles went live wow. about what we did. 
And then we launched a bigger, wider platform just a couple of months later. And there was also, there was again, like 20, 30 articles going live about what we do. Um, so anyway, there's, there, and a couple of most other stuff. So I kind of synced to between different channels, but first of all, I realized that we're solving a, a big problem. And the second thing is I make sure we're the first one to announce it because I always like to be the first uh, mover of of, a, of, a, of an industry. And then every, everything just kind of happened. Yeah. It's so true. I love how you mentioned off that it's not something that it worked for everyone because essentially what you did was you, you, you leveraged, you, you had a career beforehand, right? I mean, you had multiple startups, which is, you didn't show up to Wana as just a new entrepreneur and who I am today. You showed up to one of all that incredible previous experience and all those relationships formed from, you know, involved in your, your media company and everything else. So this is, we're able to um, bring that all together, which is amazing, incredible, you know, to leverage that for, for the next startup, eventually the next one too and everything. So a lot of times people think, oh, perfect. I'll just get, you know, find a bunch of PR people, get them, send them out an article, get them to write about it, try to reach out to a bunch of news people. No, no, it doesn't work like that. You have to put in the work. You put in the work beforehand for, for multiple years already. So... But I like how you said, you know, so from my understanding was, was first of all, have, it was clear, it was actionable, and you had a, a place where you you had a goal to reach. You know, it was clear you had a direct one landing page, one piece landing page saying directly you want. It was no clutter that we do this, 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 this. It was very clear exactly what it was. So then talk to me. So you had the idea validation, and the process you went for idea validation was you, you sent it out to a bunch of designers, a bunch of people, the salespeople. So you, I'm assuming you spoke to how many people? I spoke to, I think it was like 60 or 70 VP sales. I don't remember the number, but we made sure they're all from global companies, so it's not like a friend. That's just going to say, wow, your day is amazing and I'm going to pay for it, whatever you want, because these people eventually will not be there when you actually need their credit card. Mm -hmm. So we just talked to strangers, just VP sales that we you know, came across and, and the feedback was just amazing. You know, it was so good that we just started building the MVP before raising the funds. Right. And then how did you go about you know, getting your first angel investor? Who was your first angel investor? So the first one, I think it was the founder of Wix. There was a couple of more, but he's probably the more high profile one. Um, but it was a very short period of time. I think it was like, I don't remember exactly. I think it was like a month, like to close the round, like end to end. Oh, wow. So everything just kind of happened really fast. Um, and like you said, we ended up raising like from NFX and A Capital and VP sales at GitHub, um, you know, a VP at HubSpot, just just high high profile people with amazing backgrounds that we leverage every day. That's, that's incre absolutely incredible. So has anything surprised you around about this whole entire process? You know, the, the how it grew so quickly, how they're raising the money part, the, the, the cost. What, what surprised you about this? And, I, I, you know, most times we always ask entrepreneurs, everyone goes through that, that process of like you wake up one morning and you're sweating in bed. And, you know, you, you feel like you have to throw up and your stomach is like, you know, full that, you know, that morning in your gut feeling, you feel like things are going to, to hell. Um, and you're like, am I going to continue with this? I'm not going to continue with this. It doesn't seem like you went through any of that. It seems like it's been one, one you know, line that's been constantly going up. It is, it is some sort of a fairy tale story, but we have to remember it's just year one. Like for most companies, you know, the first year or two are like a, like a, like a dream, but you know, then reality hits you sometimes and uh, the major companies, fortune companies suddenly compete with you and, you know, someone wants to buy, like everything can happen, right. but the first year has definitely been just uh, unbelievable. Incredible. So then, excuse me, so what surprised you so far about this whole entire process of everything that's been, you know, been taking off so quickly then? What, what surprised me was hiring and I mean the hiring that we, we did like in like the first couple of months before we raised 
the seed. Um, it was a time, you know, so like like April or May of, of last year. So it was like really hardcore quarantine going on and 70,000 people were laid off from the Israeli high-tech industry and everything was just going downhill. And it was like a very weird time to tell people to leave their safe jobs with a lot of, you know, a lot of conditions and salaries and everything and come join a startup nobody gives a crap about yet um, just because it's you like you, you're the founder and, and you think they will benefit from from working with you and they will have fun and we were shocked like the, the people every first team member that we brought in from every team you know that we that you can imagine were like people with like a, a 10 15 years of experience doing what they do some of the best in Israel doing what they do and it was it was really um, it was really surprising because I would imagine it was supposed to be nearly impossible pulling people from their safe jobs back then. So how did you? You're an inspiring person, but what did you do to inspire them to come join you? Because it's not money. You don't have the money to pay them this salary. It's obvious equity. Yeah, equity is definitely always a pool, and people get excited about equity. But if you look at it, it's not necessarily the biggest pool. What did you do to inspire them? Saying, "Hey, leave this comfy job which you're making X amount of money, where you have security, where you know what you're doing every single day, and come join this." Now it's a rocket ship, but back then, this thing that's you know wibbly wobbly when we're not sure. How did you inspire them to come join you? So lucky for us, it was mostly people, like the first key hires that we had were people that actually knew us and we knew them and we wanted them to be our first people in. So that kind of made that the decision easier. And then, you know, we started seeing like a movement of people with really strong backgrounds just starting to pour in, like they saw where their friends are working and everything. Like we didn't have to persuade them with like vision and strategy yet um i think it starts getting hard like when you're 20 30 people and you're you need to expand and you know you're losing the close circles and your friends uh it's starting to wear out but uh we were lucky enough for them to want it just as much as we did right so then it's amazing it's incredible and they, you know you people that want to work together with you they believe in you you as a founder you as a ceo but you started off this company everyone is remote how did you go about building culture a day from day one remote company? So this is one of the things I really hate okay. about this new new age. Um, it's really hard like to build a fun, dynamic, uh, transparent environment when everything everyone's working in a different time zone in a different country and pretty hard you know when you don't have those late nights ordering pizza working late, working out late and um this this was what i really loved about my previous two companies like this was you know we got a we got a flow in some building like dozens and dozens of people everyone had fun and it was more productive like there's no friction in communicating and everyone's friends and now it's like you know a friend joined a really big company of hundreds of of employees during covid and she, she told me like she she's been there for like six months and she maybe knows like three people Wow. Like if she doesn't go and proactively schedule a Zoom with someone she doesn't know, then she'll never know them because they're never going to meet. Yeah. So I don't like this uh, culture, but it also had a, a lot of benefits. Like you have access to, to amazing talent that doesn't necessarily live in your small you know, area of residence. So the people that we have remotely are brilliant and I could not have worked with them if we were like a Tel Aviv only company or even a New York only company. Mm -hmm. um, so we're very distributed. We have a lot of people from a lot of countries and we're just shaping because I think there's a lot of problems with it. Then we're shaping it to be a really fun and, and positive uh, environment in every, every way that we can.
Yeah. So then what are the things you do to foster that, that connection to make sure that, God forbid, that it doesn't end up like your friend that only knows three people out of a massive company? Obviously, it's a small company, so it's much easier to, to reach out, to connect to people. But how do you foster that connection? So, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of things that we do. You know, most of them are on Zoom, mm-hmm. um, more like, you know, off-topic conversations, like mix and match between employees that are you know, they have like a 30 minutes call with each other, especially if we don't actually work together on a daily basis. Uh, flying some people when, when the situation allows us uh, to here and there. Um, just, you know, me talking to everyone almost every week, like individ- individually and also my co-founder. And we, we try to do whatever we can in, in the limitations of not physically meeting people. Right. So then how have you changed as a person, as a CEO, from the CEO of your first company to the CEO you are today. Oh, wow. Um, I, I needed that first experiment of, of, of uh, running a company in order to learn how to be and how to not be. Right. So I think I'm much more, um, much more uh, confident, much more uh, mature about things. I don't, um, I don't get angry or, ha- or uh, I don't... Uh, I don't, um, how can I say it? I'm not easily angered and I'm not easily becoming happy about stuff. Um, like I was, I was very, so I, I think that right now, much, first of all, much more confident because when I started my first company, it was kind of clear. I had no idea what I'm doing. That's one thing. The other thing is, um, I don't like, like my personal emotions b- dictate my reactions to stuff or okay. dictate uh, what I think about what team members are doing or what I'm saying to their faces and what I'm, you know, in my first company, if a client would say, by the way, your, your employee, you know, said this and that and bummed me out or something, I would go crazy. And I would say, you know, if that client leaves us, we're doomed. And, you know, I, 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 was, I was not so politically correct back then. I was, I was like very emotional. Right. And then in, in the second run, it was more like, you know, much more professional. And now I think it's purely professional. Uh, I'm looking for ways to, you know, to empower the people. And I'm, I'm admitting in my mistakes, every founder makes like 35 mistakes every day. So when I make them, I admit them. Um, you know, if someone, on, if someone in the team has made a mistake, then we kind of like go through what happened and we don't say names or anything. We just, as a team, like you want to see what happened and how we can avoid it sure. for the next time. So everything's really transparent and everything's really uh, supported. Right. That's amazing. That's, that's so amazing. And like you mentioned, that you have to go through that experience. Now, speaking of an entrepreneur the other day, and a lot of the concept was the fact that you just mentioned, everything you just mentioned, but the polar opposite, where their emotions are so intertwined with the outcome that affected their own personal life, right? And I think the only way to really be able to separate it, like, yes, my as an entrepreneur, my startup is my life, and, you know, if it's a good day, bad day, I'm going to feel it. But in order to really get that real separation, knowing that it's just, startup is just what we do, entrepreneurship is a career for itself, and every startup is part of that career. But at the end of the day, when I go, I know if, I, if you have a family, if you don't have family, whatever you have, it, your personal life is your personal life, two separate things. It only t- comes through learning, learning the experience, which you, which you went through. It doesn't work out any other way. Yeah. And, you know, someone asked me on, on some show or a podcast like a couple of months ago, and he said, what, what would you tell young entrepreneurs right now, like people in their 20s launching their first company? What would you tell them to avoid making sure. the mistakes? And 
the, the only the only response that I had was I would not tell them anything. They need okay. to perform all of these mistakes. They need to be wrong. You never know how wrong you are until you actually try. Yeah. Like if you read books and if you listen to podcasts or interviews of people that you appreciate and they say this would this was hard, this was easy, this was a mistake, nothing will really um, penetrate unless you actually do everything. If you actually feel what it is, not to um, being close to not paying a salary until you raise your next round like you said that feeling you know when your stomach is upside down and you don't know what's going to happen these are all stuff that you just have to you have to try it on your own skin otherwise you you'll never you'll never succeed yeah i i think i wish you would pre preach that and more people preach that from from everywhere because a lot of times when it comes to the discomfort and pain, we run away from it. We try to avoid it any way possible. Now, the only way to grow is when we sit in the discomfort and pain and thinking, what is it trying to teach us? What's it telling us? How can I use it for my personal growth? And especially when it comes to startups, like a lot of times, you know, you're going to go through, you know, people are going to, are trying to avoid those mistakes and problems by, yes, you should avoid stupid mistakes. Don't make them twice, but you have to make the mistake once in order to learn and grow. And most times now we find that, the, especially now, young entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs in general, are running away from those things to, not, to avoid it. So it's so important. Such a great message. You have to tell it to everyone. We should make it into a bumper sticker or something. something. So let's take a, a, a deeper turn, you know, a, a, you know, left turn and, and focus on, on y'all for a bit. You know, what are some, what's a non-obvious habit that has made you a better person? I think that when I started acting, it took a lot of good stuff out of me. Like it kind of, it kind of encourages you to, to go full speed um it kind of teaches you stuff about yourself about your courage about standing in front of a lot of people you don't know talking doing stuff um and i was you know if, if i was a shy person in high school and then i did all this acting and then i went on to lecture in front of hundreds of people in really you know decent venues and, and, and for really impressive companies I do think this is the link. Like, I don't think I would even want or be able to stand up in front of people, you know, talking about things that I do. Um, this was kind of a differentiator for me. Um, and, and, and the other thing is, I would say the band that we have, because everyone is a founder. So it's like half doing music, but it's also half talking about startups. And their startups are much more interesting than mine. Um, you know, one of them just acquired two companies. One of them has been around for a decade. And I'm a, I'm a fan of their startups. Yeah. So for me, it's a really healthy experience for like two years now. We've been meeting every week and doing music for four hours. And in between, as you imagine, we talk about our companies. Wow. That's amazing. That's so incredible. Do you, and do you have any other ways of edu educating yourself or learning about something besides obviously this incredible exclusive um, band group? I talk to a lot of a lot of well a lot of people talk to me about what they need um, and, and and I think that from these conversations I get to you know it's like someone question like it's like someone interviews you every day and you listen to yourself helping them you listen to yourself you know what would you do this this is my startup how would you do that should I approach that investor should I file that guy you know when people are like bombarding you with, with this type of questions you actually listen to yourself and you learn from yourself. It's like a funny process. Um, you're saying stuff you had no idea that you knew to say. Um, and because it's it's always easy to be the objective side, right? If someone comes to you with his problem now, you would be amazing at it. Yeah. But if you would if you would have a similar problem, maybe you would get stuck. So um, I think that from helping people, I learn a lot as well. 
Like I always say, we're, we're masters at giving unsolicited advice and, and, helping, and helping other people. And when it comes to our own advice, we, we can't because we're so emotionally attached to it. And for us, it's difficult. But someone else's advice is like a gamification type of process where like, wait, here's a problem. Here's a puzzle. Let me figure out how to solve it. Exactly. And so you, all these, do you document your processes or do you journal or write about all these advice you constantly give? Do you have it when you, within your own framework for future reference? No, I just take calls and I take Zoom meeting. I stopped taking coffees. First of all, you know, the situation right now doesn't always allow, but I, I stopped. It, it's, it's an old decision, actually, like three, four years ago. At first, I was really excited. Everyone's, you know, everyone wants to talk to you about what they're doing, what they want to do and get your feedback. And. You go to meet people every day and you meet them for a beer and coffee and tea, whatever. And you, you waste so much time about stuff that don't really, don't really um, encourage your own business. Right. So I stopped taking like physical meetings with strangers just for helping out. So I take a lot of calls and Zooms and stuff like that. And, and it's, a big, it's a big portion of the, of the week for me. Right. And that, that itself is almost a full-time job sometimes. Um, yeah. so what do we tell a young yard? You know, he's leaving his kibbutz for the first time. Let's say he's 21 and he has multiple options that he could do. He could go fly to Hollywood and try and, you know, follow his aspirations of becoming the next Brad Pitt. Or he could, you know, go to Italy and he become a nomad, you know, traveling, you know, the coast over there. Or he could even go, you know, if he wants, wants to become, you know, go follow the Grateful Dead and become a musician. Or he could even come ahead and, be, you know, try to go into entrepreneurship. What message do we tell a young 21-year-old? I really like where I am right now. So I would not want to, you know, like the butterfly effect, I would not want to change everything that led to this moment. Um, I would tell him what I said earlier, like, you're going to make shit tons of mistakes. You got to do them. And that's fine. And even if you'll have difficult times because you would think, wow, this is a disaster. Wow. Right. You know, that client left us. Wow. Three employees left us on the same. Like, you know, stuff that happens in every company and you just kind of let time fix it. Um, you're going to go through all that, but it's going to build you as a better, you know, as, as, as a good founder, as a better CEO. And you would not learn it in any degree. You would not learn it from just just listening to other people. You have to do it. Yeah. 100, 100%. I love that. I love that. And, you know, I, I personally learned so much, you know, from our our short conversation, which is definitely going to have to have have another follow up soon, and multiple other follow ups, God willing. But a lot of the things um, you mentioned, you know, first of all, it's what I personally learned is learn how to appreciate the journey, not to appreciate the journey. And um, at the same time, don't beat yourself up. Don't. You know, you're going to make those mistakes, and those mistakes are okay. And you know, a lot of times we're just so we're so hard on ourselves, and. You know, we don't allow ourselves to make those mistakes. And when we do make the mistakes, we, you know, we start, you know, you know, punching ourselves as a punching bag. No, no, take it easy. It's okay. You're going to go through those things and know that it's okay. And then the other thing was, I mean, there's multiple different types of things, especially, you know, specifically within the, you know, on the startup space, like, you know, how to go approach a launch or anything like that. But more on the personal side, which I personally took, is, you know, appreciate the journey, make those mistakes, you know, treat, obviously, have, you know, have empathy and, you know, go through multiple iterations of that type of empathy towards your employees, towards people. But there's so many other credible things. And there's no doubt that, you know, I've highly benefited, but there's so many people are going to learn so much from this that's going to affect their personal life, their startup life, wherever it's holding. And, you know, I know for sure, not even a question that Walnut is off to the big races. It's going to be incredible things. So and, and I'm always here for, for you and for Walnut. So I want to wish you so much success so so much success more than you could possibly ever imagine and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and being honest with us on this show today appreciate it
Thanks. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed. I hope to see you back next week with an incredible episode with a phenomenal, phenomenal entrepreneur. Next week, we're releasing the episode of Frida Pauli, the CEO of a great company called Pymetric. She has the most amazing story, and I cannot wait to share it together with you. In the meantime, do an act of kindness. Share a positive word with someone else. Smile at a stranger. Let's spread positivity, goodness, and kindness throughout the world to make the world a better place for you, for me, and for everyone around us.